1: Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. I'm Patrick Lane, Deputy Digital Editor at The Economist. Coming up on today's show, Donald Trump is on the tariff war path again, Saudi Arabia is set to sell its first oil company shares, and Branko Milanovic talks about the future of capitalism. First up, Donald Trump is something of a trade warrior. He's taken up the cudgels again, announcing tariffs on steel and aluminium imports from Brazil and Argentina. And he's threatened to slap 100% tariffs on some French goods, including wine, cheese and handbags. He says that's in retaliation for France's new digital services tax, which would hit American companies such as Google and Apple. Until now, China has been the main target of Mr Trump's tariffs, and recently he's been boasting about the pain that they've inflicted on the Chinese economy. But a couple of recent surveys of its manufacturing sector indicate that the Chinese economy is stronger than he thinks. One survey hit its highest in three years, while another surpassed most expectations. Simon Rabinovich is The Economist's Asia economics editor. He's based in Shanghai, and he joins me down the line now. Hello, Simon. Hi, Patrick. How surprising are these figures, Simon? And what do they tell us?
0: They're a little bit surprising in that uh, most in the market had expected the figures to be weaker. So what they tell us, first of all, is that short term, the economy seems to be holding up all right. Uh, There's been, you know, a steady drumbeat of headlines about stress in the financial system. You know, every day brings a different corporate default, a series of small banks, but nevertheless, you know, somewhat significant. And of course, lots of talk from Donald Trump about the problems that the Chinese economy has been facing. But when you look at indicators like this, you know, it's it's a good sign that the real economy, is, as it's often described in China, is in better shape than all that. And it's not just the manufacturing surveys, a series of other short-term indicators, things like coal consumption for power factories, um, the prices of steel and cement inventories, All of those point to a small cyclical upturn in the economy. So I guess that's the the good news as far as China is concerned. The bigger picture is that it's still in the midst of a long slowdown. Growth in the third quarter was slower than in the second quarter. Growth in the fourth will be slower than in the third. And growth next year is very likely to be slower than this year. So the big slowdown is continuing, but it's not a collapse.
1: Given that these clouds are swirling around the Chinese economy, what might have caused this boost, even if it's just a short term one for the manufacturing sector?
0: As you say, it's short term, so we probably shouldn't overinterpret one month 's data is highly volatile, and you know, certainly some people think that seasonality has been a factor in it it 's been a warmer autumn so far than previous years, and so that 's helped to support activity um, at the margins though there is uh, you know, more government support for the economy they 've been approving a lot more investment projects in recent months they 've been um, approving a lot more bond issuance by um, you know municipalities and provinces, which then provides the funding for that kind of investment um and the central bank has started to very cautiously trim interest rates so you've got this support that's beginning to be reflected in the economy but then i think also with the trade war it's important to recognize that at some level the economy has begun to digest the impact of it tariffs have been in place for you know months and months already and so manufacturers have begun to adjust to them and i think there's a certain degree of confidence as well that Although the trade war is not going away, it doesn't appear to be getting worse anytime soon. And so therefore you kind of have a semblance of confidence and stability coming back into the economy.
1: So does this mean that people expect that there'll be progress in the US-China trade negotiations?
0: There certainly is hope on both sides that there is going to be progress. Officials from both countries um, have in, in recent weeks been suggesting that a phase one trade deal, is, as uh, Donald Trump has called it, uh, you know, a preliminary trade deal that would deal with some aspects of their trade tensions is close to completion. And if that were to happen, that would mean that, you know, at the very least, tariffs that are threatened to go into effect in December will not go into effect. So I think there is the expectation that that might be happening. At the same time, you know, the political mood between America and China has really taken a turn for the worse in the past couple of weeks. So I think despite the relatively optimistic signals that officials had been giving, I think there is now concern that's beginning to return to to some investors and to some companies that, you know, just as previous dawns in the trade war turned out to be false, you know, there's concern that this phase one dawn might be false as well
1: on the other side of the pacific we've had numbers this week showing that american manufacturing is in decline so could that exacerbate tensions between the two sides
0: again the american data there's a smorgasbord of different indicators that you can look at and so you know the one survey that you're referring to the ism survey was weak other surveys have looked better orders for durable goods in october were fairly strong consumer spending was was fairly strong as well so in some ways, actually, I think the concern for America is similar to the concern for China, which is that actually the short-term data flow um, is, is reasonably robust. And so the risk, I think, is that leaders on both sides you know, actually feel relatively emboldened and they feel that their countries are, are holding up quite well despite the trade war having dragged on as long as it has. And so therefore, the spirit or the inclination towards compromise might be dampened because both will feel that they have a certain degree of, of strength and leverage. Um, so I think for the global economy that the bigger concern is that if there was more downside in the short term that might make the two countries more inclined towards compromise but, but we're not actually seeing that yet.
1: We've also had these tariffs imposed on Brazil and Argentina and the threat of them on these goods from France. Now what if any are the implications for China of that?
0: So China hasn't responded directly to the tariffs, but at some level, they're a gift from Trump to China. You know, China had expected that as the trade war raged on, that they would be able to pick off, you know, more and more American allies who would see China as a force for stability. In fact, it's not played out like that. Although a lot of countries have objected to Trump's tactics, they've broadly agreed with the concerns that America has raised about China's economic practices. But when you have Trump, you know, raising tariffs against Brazil and Argentina, two countries that, you know, few economists, in fact, no economists really think are actually manipulating their currencies and that are dealing with serious economic troubles. When you have Trump threatening massive tariffs against France, you know, effectively, it's making it a lot harder for American allies to stay positive about the direction in which Trump is trying to take the global economy so it doesn't mean that they're going to swing over to China's camp right away but it definitely dents America's appeal and uh, in, in the long term you know China thinks that it will be able to win more supporters if Trump continues to use these kinds of hardball tactics.
1: Thank you Simon.
0: Okay thank you Patrick.
1: Next, Saudi Arabia's giant state-owned oil company Aramco is on the verge of its first outing on the Riyadh stock market. Aramco plans to announce its offer price on December 5th, with a listing due next week. It's all part of plans hatched by the Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman, to make the Saudi economy less dependent on oil. Back in October on Money Talks, we told you that Aramco was getting serious about an IPO. But with the launch imminent, The Economist's Energy and Commodities Editor, Charlotte Howard, joins me down the line from New York to give us an update. Hello, Charlotte. Hi, Patrick. So what's changed since we last spoke to you about Aramco?
2: An enormous amount has changed. So they announced that they would go forward with the listing officially. They have had... Many meetings with investors. There's been quite a lot of drama where they decided to cancel roadshows in the US and in London, in parts of Asia, because of a lack of interest from institutional investors. So it's been quite a roller coaster. But at last, this process is drawing to a close, and the offer price will be announced, as you say, on December 5th. And then trading will begin on the Tadal next week.
1: After all this back and forth, does it look as if the share sale will be a success?
2: Depends on your uh, metric for success. So years ago, when Mohammed bin Salman first floated the idea that Aramco would pursue an IPO, and by that we mean not that it would list the entire company, but it was always intended to be just a a minority of shares that would be Listed, he suggested that it might have a valuation of $2 trillion, and the expectation was that about 5% of the company would be listed. So we've found out in the past month that, in fact, just 1.5% of the company would be listed, and at an a valuation range of 1.6 to about 1.7 trillion, which is below that initial target. But even that valuation is much higher than many international institutional investors think the company uh, should achieve. So there's been quite a disconnect both between the crown prince's ambition and the broader appetite of the market. And then there's also disconnect even between his more modest valuation compared with his original goal of $2 trillion. There's a gap between that and what the broader international market thinks the company deserves.
1: Where's the interest from investors coming from?
2: At 1.6 to 1.7 trillion, there are very few large international institutional investors that are interested. So instead, they're raising lots of money from within the Gulf region, both from state actors in Kuwait and Abu Dhabi, as well as retail investors within the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So this has gone from being a very large international affair to a more regional one. And it's looking quite different than the original idea for the IPO.
1: From that, we can infer that Mohammed bin Salman isn't going to raise as much money from this IPO as he hoped in the first place. So how disappointed do you think he'll be?
2: I think he should feel quite disappointed. The idea for the IPO was to raise money so that Aramco could invest in other sectors beyond oil. It remains very dependent on the oil sector and it needs to have its economy evolve so it can provide more employment for its very large youthful population and also just diversify against oil, which looks like a dangerous sector to be propping up your economy if long-term demand for oil is uncertain. The issue is what's happened here is not only has he not raised as much money as he had hoped, But you have a situation in which most of the investors are local investors. In order to make it a success for them and to have the share price for Aramco rise, you want to have the oil price rise. And so you're in the situation where he wants to diversify away from being dependent on oil. But if you look at over the next few months or year, the success of this IPO is very much contingent on Aramco and Saudi Arabia continuing to help prop up the global oil price. So It's kind of all a headache, frankly, where you have something that was supposed to really move Saudi Arabia forward. And it's quite unclear to me the degree to which that's been accomplished.
1: And by chance, OPEC, the oil cartel of which Saudi Arabia has long been the the dominant member, has a big meeting this week, doesn't it, on December 5th and 6th. So how will the IPO affect Saudi Arabia's role within the organisation?
2: So it's really interesting. I mean, this is part of the concern that some investors have and the reason why they they would have been happy to buy into Aramco maybe at around $1.2 trillion, given its enormous reserves and very low costs. You know, it has impressive return on capital. But it also has these governance questions, which Aramco has and no international oil company does. So one of them is that Saudi Arabia is the uh, leader, as you say, of OPEC and the OPEC Plus Alliance, which includes Russia and some other countries that are not officially within OPEC, but they've been working together to curb production and hold up prices. But because Saudi Arabia plays such an important role within OPEC, and indeed in the past year you've seen Saudi Arabia cutting production beyond the levels agreed to by the past OPEC agreement made a year ago, there's a limited potential for Aramco to really boost its own production, which then makes it a less attractive stock. So if you think about, you know, investors want to invest in a company that's growing quite quickly, and there is a natural inhibitor on Aramco's growth because it plays this role in helping to balance the broader oil market.
1: Always good to talk, Charlotte. Thanks for the update. Nice to speak with you. And finally, when the Soviet Union collapsed in the early 1990s, many people thought that that signalled the final triumph of capitalism over the global economy. It was the end of history. Except it wasn't. In different political systems, very different forms of capitalism have evolved. Can they coexist? And which system is the best at encouraging growth? Branko Milanovic is an economist at the Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality at the City University of New York. And he's also the author of Capitalism Alone The Future of the System That Rules in the World. The economist's Rachana Shanbog asked Mr. Milanovic to what extent it makes sense to talk about a single type of capitalism.
3: Capitalism is now, globally speaking, the only mode of production. We are all capitalists now. But uh, capitalism is not exactly the same everywhere. So my argument is that actually we are talking about two forms of capitalism nowadays. One that can be called liberal or meritocratic, where the terms are really coming from John Rawls' uses of these two terms. And the other type of capitalism is political capitalism, where China is, I believe, the best example of it.
4: If we stick with liberal meritocratic capitalism for now, what distinguishes that from the types of capitalism that we saw previously, I think, what you've called social democratic capitalism and classical capitalism?
3: In a classical or kind of Ricardo Marx type of capitalism that we have all been used when we do economic history and also read the original economic work. You basically have a strong class structure where people who own capital and property are on the top and they have capital income only. On the other hand, everybody who depends on labor for his or her income does not have capital income. So you really have a full distinction, separation between the rich capitalists at one end and everybody else who is a worker and a laborer. Now, you fast forward to the present day and you have a very different situation. You have the situation that capital still is owned overwhelmingly by the rich people, but the rich people also have quite a lot of labor income. And there we have really people at the very top of the sort of income pyramid who have very large part of labor and capital income and who can be as what I called in homo Plutia, which means that actually you can be at the same time among the top decile by labor earners and the top decile of capital earners.
4: And Branko, you contrast the liberal capitalism with the political capitalism seen in China which of the two systems do you think is better at fostering growth?
3: If you take a liberal capitalism to be democratic, largely, and if you believe that democracy is a value in itself because it gives you the right to express your opinions and so on, clearly that represents one of the advantages of liberal capitalism. On the other hand, political capitalism actually plays on a different chessboard by saying, Well, we can make growth much higher than the liberal capitalism. We can actually get rid of all these unnecessary red tape or all the issues which may be related to the NGOs or political civic organizations and others who are actually preventing the development. And if we can do that, then people's livelihood people's uh, welfare would increase faster. And then eventually, since we are all capitalist systems, those who are actually more efficient in providing goods and services will come to dominate simply because they would be richer. So I think that actually the justification and the legitimacy that uh, political capitalism tries to present itself to the others is really based on fast growth.
4: That difference in what each side sees as being legitimate. Does that mean that the two systems are bound to conflict with each other?
3: I would say no, because the reason why there was a fundamental incompatibility between communism and liberal capitalism was because they really were appealing to very different constituencies and where, for example, were communism to win, they would have nationalized all the properties and there would have been a loss of income or wealth of many capital. On the other hand, as capitalism won, there was, of course, as we have seen, massive privatization. So in that sense, there is an incompatibility, which is in those cases. But in the case of capitalism, which is either political or liberal, I don't see the contrast to be as great. You know, there is obviously there are differences in the political sphere. But in the economic sphere, I really, at the level of very abstract reasoning, I don't see the two systems clashing.
4: If there isn't a fundamental tension between them, do you think this parallel system is sustainable in a steady state or do the two eventually converge?
3: I I believe that mankind is a very complex and extremely diverse group of people. So the ideas that we entertained after the fall of the Berlin Wall, that the entire world would really be both economically and politically living under the same system, I think they have been shown to be somewhat naive. Whether there would be a, a convergence, I leave that sort of possibility open. And I mentioned that one can actually think that as liberal capitalism moves more toward plutocracy with the ability of the rich people to buy, as it were, the political system. And on the other hand, what we see in the case of China are politicians who are using their political position, or power, to become rich, then you really would end up with a system that would uh, be very concentrated in the sense that the same people would have both economic and political power, but that the origin of that unification of the economic and political power would be different.
4: If we had an interest in ensuring the viability of, say, liberal meritocratic capitalism, what needs to be done and who needs to do what?
3: The ideal development first needs to be a peaceful development which means no geopolitical jostling for position that we have seen now. Secondly, I think that there are some inherent advantages of liberal capitalism that I mentioned before, which are basically democracy and human freedom, which are obvious and which need not be imposed. So I think that actually if one really wanted to promote the values inherent and implicit in liberal capitalism, the best external policy is literally to do nothing. On the other hand, domestically, in order to be more attractive, obviously one will have, I believe, to take much more seriously issues like inequality, the political power of the top 1%, campaign contributions, climate change, all these issues that we know nowadays are really crucial, and to which, unfortunately, politicians do not pay much attention. So I think domestically, it is really improvement of liberal capitalism. Externally, it is projecting that improvement, but without imposing the system on others.
4: Branko, thank you very much.
3: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you.
1: That was my colleague Ratna Shanbog, talking to Branko Blanovich. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Before you go... We'd like to hear more from you. Let us know what you think of our podcasts in our survey. Visit economist.com slash podsurvey to tell us what you think. I'm Patrick Lane. In London, this is The Economist.